This podcast was made possible thanks to Drama Victoria. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we're speaking with Dr Meg Upton, lecturer in education, pedagogy and culture at Deakin University, all about audience culture. Dr. Meg Upton has been the education manager for Melbourne Theatre Company and Malthouse. She runs workshops for Drama Victoria, Malthouse, the Victorian Curriculum Assessment Authority, and has worked in many capacities for the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority. She is also a legitimate living drama educator legend. Please note, this episode was not recorded in the studio, and so the audio quality is not as high as it usually is. Without further ado, I bring you Dr. Meg Upton. Welcome to the podcast, Meg Upton. Hi. Why are we talking about audience culture? In VCE Drama and Theatre Studies, students, such as you, are audiences. They make work for audiences. We can think of this in relation to perhaps actor-audience relationship and manipulation of that relationship. The Theatre Studies design actually talks specifically about something known as audience culture, though, and it says students consider their audiences and, in their interpretations, incorporate knowledge and understanding of audience culture, demographic and sensibilities. So, in this podcast, we're talking about audience. What is an audience? Particularly, what is audience culture? And why is it important to theatre? So what is an audience? Oh, well, there's many opinions out there in the world about what an audience is, and there's a whole field of audience research that exists, and thousands of books and academic papers have been written. Some people have made audience research their life's work. For instance, director Peter Brook, he who wrote The Empty Space, famously stated, Take any space, call it a bare stage. A man walks across this empty space while someone else is watching him, and This is all that is needed for an act of theatre. In the same year, which was 1968, but several countries apart, the Polish director Jerzy Krotowski stated in his book, Towards a Poor Theatre, that theatre is what takes place between spectator and actor. There's even an entire play written about this whole idea by Luigi Pirandello called Six Characters in Search of an Author, an absurdist play about the relationship between playwrights, characters, theatre practitioners and audiences. Theatre is not theatre unless there's an audience, even if it's an audience of just one. Smartphone cameras and social media mean that even the most mundane events are captured and then broadcast for what could end up being an enormous online audience. In the end, though, while people are physically present in a performance, be it live or online, they choose whether to engage with it and on what terms. So, in aiming to answer the question, what is an audience, research, theatre practice, directors and public commentary determine that an audience is one or more people who are spectators or observers, potential participants and sometimes bystanders to theatrical events and performed moments in places and spaces where a performance can occur. That could be your kitchen. What do audiences bring to their experience of seeing theatre and performance? Hmm. All audiences bring certain knowledge and expectations. These are often cultural. Theatre first involved audiences through ritual, dance, storytelling and festival in a very participatory way. These are still present in most cultures today. The ancient Greeks made this a much more formal arrangement, though. They drew on types of rituals and celebrations and developed them into enormous events to celebrate the gods, particularly one named Dionysus. 
theatre was free, but if you're rich, you sat at the front. If you're a peasant and or a woman, you sat at the back. Depending on the play, audiences would call out, hiss and throw stones. Greek audiences came to the theatre to celebrate their gods, but also they came to listen to argument, to laugh at bawdy comedies, to be shocked by violent tragedies and to think about man's relationship with the gods. Audiences in Rome brought a whole new meaning to violence in their viewing. Think about the Colosseum, for example. Audiences in China and Japan brought the expectation of a very long day and night as performances, mainly the Japanese forms of kabuki and no and of Chinese opera, could last anywhere between a full day to three whole days. Audiences had expectations. They expected superior performances, and they also had the capacity to stop the performance and insist on improvements. In Shakespeare's time, Elizabethan audiences all went to the theatre. They clapped, they booed whenever they felt like it, sometimes even threw fruit. Groundlings paid a penny to stand and watch performances in the pit. Then they could turn and gawk up at their betters, the fine rich people who paid for the most expensive tickets, some even getting to actually sit on the stage. The place, called a theatre by then, was full of pickpockets and prostitutes. People came and went to relieve themselves because they drank massive quantities of beer. And theatre was not only a major social occasion, it could often feel like a competition for attention. Audiences in Shakespeare's time came from every class, and their only other entertainment, apart from theatre, was bear baiting and public execution. Loud and rowdy audiences remained throughout England and the European theatres even after the theatre was restored. And theatre historians note that all during this time, performers had to virtually shout to be heard. However, theatre and opera practitioner Richard Wagner, 1813 to 1883, began to produce opera and theatre that has changed the way audiences behave for well over 150 years. He decided that the audience was primarily interested in theatre just as a social occasion, that they only wanted entertainment, and that the way the theatre space was designed and lit contributed to that. Wagner blackened the auditorium. He removed orchestras from view and placed them in a pit out of sight. The idea was to bring the audience's attention solely to the performance space, which was the only lit area. Dimming house lights and blackening the auditorium space created a whole new audience experience. The development of naturalism and realism in the theatre in the mid to late 19th century also changed audience expectations and audience behaviour. Intimate family tragedies, including those by Ibsen and Chekhov, that were performed behind what we call the fourth wall, meant audience has had to be quiet in order to listen and hear the performers. The advent of Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis in the early part of the 20th century was reflected in theatre as well. Theatre became a more psychological space, with audiences in the role of eavesdropping and pondering the truths of the human condition. While other forms of theatre in the 20th century sought to challenge audiences, Bertolt Brecht and Alfred Jarry, for example, later also the work of Artaud, being quiet and focused in the theatre is still the default behaviour and expectation. On many theatre company websites, you'll find documents called Theatre Etiquette, a set of rules for good audience behaviour. But in more contemporary theatre companies, such as Forced Entertainment, Punch Drunk, Theatre Complicité and Societas Raffaello Sanzio, the actor-audience relationship has become much more dynamic and live. 
because companies have come to know we all bring a personal background and experience which is critically important to our response and therefore their work. What contexts can audiences find themselves in, in terms of theatre? As a student of theatre studies, depending on the performance you're seeing and the venue in which it's being presented, including in your school if it's an incursion, you're offered completely different experiences as an audience. The design of the theatre can offer distance or intimacy in terms of proximity to performers and to other audience members, including the types of seating, the presence of performers before the show, pre-performance sound and lighting, the temperature and colour scheme of the venue, its glamour or grunge, the familiarity and unfamiliarity you may have with it. The venue in which you see a performance is an important aspect of your experience from the moment you walk in or arrive and can set up the culture of that experience. You can think what technologies are, are present and apparent, what are suggested just from walking into the venue, and then predict what is revealed to you as the performance progresses. Think now about some of the venues you've been to, their size, their shape, the space, the audience auditorium. What types of theatre spaces do you know? Proscenium March, such as Her Majesty's or The Regent, the State Theatre at the Arts Centre, all in Melbourne. Contemporary proscenium theatres like the Melbourne Theatre Company's Sumner. Flexible, large studio spaces such as The Merlin at Malthouse. Small black box theatres such as The Lawler, also at Southbank Theatre. The tiny studio space that is La Mama. Perhaps your own local performing arts centre, your school hall or your drama studio. What types of audiences do these theatres expect? What actor-audience relationships do these spaces set up? Can they be manipulated? Do these spaces mean that only certain types of performance can occur? If you've seen Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, how would you describe the audience and the expectations of that audience, the manipulation of that relationship? What culture does that audience bring to that show? How can we ensure our intended meaning as theatre makers is received by an audience? Think about when you're an audience. What are you seeing, hearing and feeling? What we see, hear and feel helps us to understand and make sense of a performance. The more theatre we see, the more we come to understand it as a medium and the embedded codes that are in it. As drama and theatre study students, seeing theatre, you add to your experience the following. You have to consider the layers of elements, conventions, expressive skills, performance skills, production areas, theatre technologies, design elements, actor-audience relationship. For instance, consider what you know about how theatre lighting, sound and set change can shift time and place. Years can happen on stage in the space of just two hours. Theatre researcher, a guy called Rick Knowles, who's written widely about audiences, says that the ways in which audiences make meaning vary according to the given circumstances of each performance and with each spectator. So spectators, such as you, bring their individual expectations to an event, including their knowledge and experience of historical, social and theatrical codes, such as the elements, conventions, expressive skills, etc., that we talked about earlier. He's suggesting that each audience for each performance is different because it's made up of a range of individuals or groups of spectators who are going to impact it in some way and make meaning of it in some way. Another theatre researcher, 
John Whitmore, believes that not only is each audience different, but in order for them to find the meaning, they have to understand, yep, codes. What codes are at work? Including the codes and conventions of styles and particular performances themselves. This coding is something called semiotics, the science of signs and symbols. Semiotics also comes into play when we read books, look at artwork, watch films and listen to music, all of which have signs and symbols that we have to come to understand in order to be able to make meaning. Codes in the theatre can include our need as an audience to suspend our disbelief. We know that what is happening isn't real, but we will buy into something like the action of a murder that's about to happen in order to go along with the story just to enjoy the experience. Audiences also need to know what a fourth wall is, when it's present and when we're looking in, or it's absent, where soliloquy and direct address and participatory audience experiences can be directly said to us. We accept that as a convention and a code. In more contemporary times though, new theatre forms are breaking conventions and developing new theatre codes. For instance, UK's punch drunk immersive theatre experiences Sleep No More and The Drowned Man, the audience is an active and moving body of people throughout a whole series of different spaces in a large building. The audience makes choices within the world of that play and those choices will determine which part of the story they actually see. If, as research suggests, audiences need to understand codes, signs and symbols within theatre, how do you, as theatre makers and designers, incorporate these codes, signs and symbols into your own work? Do you do this in the design, through the direction of actors and performances, through the use of particular technologies? Do you write it into the program notes? Consider how in the performances you've seen how creative teams use colour, texture, shape, form, fragmentation, space, level, movement quality, vocal quality, intimacy, distance, dynamic, repetition, to symbolise, represent and offer audiences ways to make meaning. What does demographic mean and how does that apply to audiences? A good way to think about demographics is who the creative team have in mind when making a piece of theatre. Theatre is made for babies from 6 to 12 months old. It can be aimed specifically at children aged 5 to 8 or created for an audience of teenagers. Some theatre is strictly adult or it may be made for an intergenerational audience, you know, family friendly. Sometimes a piece of theatre is claimed to be educational and for a VCE audience. What are your thoughts about that? Are VCE students a distinctive audience? If so, what do you think creative teams have in mind when they intend to work to be for VCE? How does that characterise you? What demographic are they thinking about? Theatre can sometimes be controversial, and that controversy usually stems from audience reception and reaction. So there's some cultural sensitivities that we can consider here. In thinking back to audience demographics, as theatre makers, we also need to consider diversity and how such diversities might be present in an audience, including cultural, religious or faith, linguistic, gender, ability, physical, age, and how these diversities impact people's beliefs and values, ways of seeing the world and experiencing and responding to a piece of theatre. 
Throughout theatre's history, the inclusion of certain stories, words, characters, perspectives and actions on stage have caused social, moral and political outrage, even in contemporary democratic societies. At different points in history, theatres have been subject to censorship by outside authorities. Theatre makers cannot possibly correct theatre to accommodate all people's sensitivities and sensibilities, and sometimes audience members can respond to aspects in unexpected ways. Have you, for instance, seen a piece of theatre that challenged some of your own views and why? Have others in your group felt the same as you? Is it okay to be challenged in the theatre? So in thinking about audience culture for theatre studies, and even drama, it is important to consider the demographic or type of audience you might be creating for. Research and dramaturgy in relation to historical, political, social and cultural contexts can be very helpful. It is especially important if you're considering recontextualising a work. Who would be your new audience? Will the play's meaning still be conveyed and will it offer new meanings to a new audience? What sensibilities and sensitivities might you need to account for? Understanding audience culture can help you make all of those decisions. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Meg Upton. That is all from us at the Aside podcast for today. There are a load of episodes in the bank, so feel free to go through those and find one that piques your interest. This podcast has recently hit 25,000 listens, so that's a huge thanks to all the people around Melbourne, Australia, and the world who tune into the Aside podcast. If you would like to ask us a question, please feel free to do so at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Thank you to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. Thank you to Dr. Meg Upton for her hard work on this episode. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>